This is COVID-19 Seattle. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Aaron Granillo. Well, it's official now. Washington's largest public school district is beginning the new school year online. The Seattle Public Schools Board was unanimous in its vote yesterday, though it did say eventually some classes could take place outside. This means most districts in western Washington now plan to start the school year remotely. Kelly O'Brien and I talked about the upcoming school year with the state superintendent of public instruction, Chris Raikdahl. What is the timeline? Have you issued guidelines for when schools have to commit to what they're going to do this year? And and are schools actually uh, sending that information to parents now? Yeah, the requirement for our districts is to submit their plans uh, within two weeks of their opening. And uh, we've got some Eastern Washington districts that open pretty early traditionally, and so those are just barely starting to roll into our office now. Most on the west side will have another week or two before they submit their plans. Okay, so we should know soon if you don't already, though many districts have already decided to go online only. I know early on, back in March, April, when when schools did close, the big concern uh, was the at-risk students, whether that be abuse that they're experiencing at home or uh, food insecurity, and schools act as that uh, needed meal. What has been the actual impact uh, from the spring session that you've been able to find to those at-risk students? Yeah, good morning, Colleen. I think uh, from a public health perspective or a human services function, that data lags tremendously. So there, there isn't tremendous insight uh, on that. But we absolutely know about the lack of connectivity for families. Uh, both Seattle public schools have worked very hard, as have districts around the state, to close that connection. Um, tens of thousands of additional signups, uh, in, including hardware devices and connectivity. And uh, we're just launching federal dollars uh, literally as we speak today. Uh, that we think can close the gap for another fifty or 60,000 families so they get high-quality connection, uh, which will really enhance the learning experience remotely. Well, how is the state tracking abused or uh, hungry students? Well, we continue to deliver food and have a high take-up rate for our free and reduced-price lunch families, and that will still be an expectation. Even in remote learning models, uh, our food nutrition program is both federally and, and state-funded, uh, that will continue as pickup, as deliveries. Each district will have their food delivery model. The other part of that is completely a local, um, you know, human services or child uh, welfare systems. There, there's no role in public education for that. That's always been on the county uh, social services side. Oh, I see. So do you not partner with the agencies that track these at-risk students? Well, we do, but it's that data collection legs tremendously. And so... Um, Think of a traditional situation where um, uh, we've got a mandatory reporter or somebody who has identified a student who may be at risk. Uh, That still exists. And uh, that call would be made to somebody in local uh, human services function, and they would do follow-up with law enforcement, for example, if they think there's a case of abuse or something. All that process still exists. Uh, What I was trying to be clear is whatever happened this spring in terms of aggregate data, uh, we wouldn't have that for a very long time, and we don't collect it. That would all be done through law enforcement and local uh, human services. And then, again, we're notified uh, if there's uh, additional risk to students, but uh, we, we don't, school districts are not involved in the process of uh, implementing strategies with families once identified. Our job by law is to flag where we think a student may be at risk, and that that responsibility continues. I see. Based on what you're seeing around the nation, uh, we'll just point to Georgia, for example, as we've heard uh, that one school that had you know 900 students and staff now in quarantine because of an outbreak after that picture went viral where 
There was a crowded hallway and not much mask wearing. When you see something like that just days into their school year, do you really believe in your heart schools could reopen at any point this year or early next year without a vaccine? Well, I think there are um, community transmission rates and data that would uh, make it possible. Uh, You saw what the governor and DOH did, and I always remind folks, I have no authority to close or open schools forcibly. Uh, The governor, however, uh, made that decision last spring when he he believed that cases were too high. And now there's a framework for districts. They're in high-risk counties, medium or low-risk counties. Virtually all districts in high and medium are starting uh, remotely. But we do have some districts around the state who are in low Uh, risk based on their uh, viral loads in their communities, and they are opening in hybrid models or fully face-to-face. And so that local decision remains local control. Uh, But yeah, our state, unfortunately, had this tremendous lowering of cases through April and May, and things were looking very positive. And then at the end of May and the beginning of June, uh, cases started to spike up again. States around the country who have tried to do some modified openings have seen cases uh, really take off in some of their schools. And so Mass congregate settings are not going to work in the short term, but smaller groups, one-to-one supports in these hybrid models uh, can be effective. We've looked at 14 or 15 other countries around the world. Some did not do it very well at all, Um, and then some have been really rigorous about their process and have had some limited success. So you do see schools, in your opinion, being able to reopen in counties like Snohomish, King, or Pierce without a vaccine? Yeah, but, but but right now we don't see the larger societal behavior bringing those numbers down to get them out of high and medium risk. And if that isn't the case, uh, I think it's going to be hard for those communities to, to, to uh, accept that. But it's a community decision. It is a local decision. Online learning, it's gotten really bad reviews. Have you done any research on on that? And are there any school districts that have come up with some sort of formula for doing it more effectively? Yeah, I mean, we've got districts here in terms of uh, White River, um, I think, has been really, really exceptional. Uh, we've got others in the in the region who have been who have been pretty good. You know, the research on it, Dave, is interesting. This has been around for a very long time in places where they've had years to perfect the model. And remember, mostly it's self-selection. So historically, what we're looking at for 20 years of students who have selected hybrid or remote learning models is they've wanted that. It's something they particularly wanted. And so there was selection bias. These are students who wanted this opportunity. And they're pretty decent out there. Turning an entire country to remote learning, as has happened last uh, last spring, where all 50 states closed down to in-person learning, uh, that system is not prepared for that. 51 million kids across the country did not have uh, the structure in place, and none of the states did uh, at scale. Uh, but we definitely see some... Uh, some pretty good signs, uh, much more robust this time. Daily schedules, weekly schedules, taking attendance. Um, we've got uh, evaluation of student learning going on. We've got a lot more structure to this thing. Um, so we've had to turn on a dime. And uh, in public education, that <laughs> doesn't always do that. But, boy, this experience this fall will be dramatically better than this spring, but still no substitute for high-quality in-person learning. Is anybody seriously exploring the idea of paying parents to homeschool their kids? Well, our statutes don't allow for that, um, but we have a lot of online providers, and families can choose those. Um, you definitely have a right in the state to pull uh, your, your child out and do a homeschool model, and in some communities, they've figured out how to make sure that family is supplied really good quality resources, and so... There's an entire homeschool network in our state that has done really hard work creating quality materials for their students. Um, But this is such a short-term sort of shock that I think people are appropriately being cautious. 
you don't destroy this model, uh, which is absolutely best in person with all of our learning supports, all of our nutritional supports, mental health, and everything else. You don't tear that down financially for a short-term shock like this. I think instead we work together to try to solve what we can, put the best model forward, keep getting better at it, um, and get a darn vaccine. We've got many companies in stage three trials. Um, I will tell you the very first thing that could happen uh, if the federal administration was was really serious about this, it's just uniform testing everywhere and short-term turnaround. Uh, I, if we were Germany testing kids every day, uh, every three or four days, we could be back to school very quickly. That would be nice. I, I just I have to say, Chris, as a two-working parent household, this sure doesn't feel like short-term. Yeah, it's tough. I've got two of my own, and they're having very different experiences. So like you, I'm living this very personally, and... Um, I really feel uh, this, is a, this is a challenging time, and you hear that all across the country and across our state. Uh, we, we need a vaccine, but we also have to get our transmission rates down, and then we can begin to do more and more and more in-person learning. And that was the recommendation of, of health and all the experts is phase it in, uh, bring in K1 or bring in K5 earlier once those cases come down. So uh, we can get back to school in person short of a vaccine, uh, but it would take a tremendous community effort right now. We've got to wear our face coverings got to be physically distanced. Uh, we're going to get some hot weather this weekend. It doesn't mean race out to beaches uh, and, and stand next to each other and swim in, in waters together. It means keeping physical distance all the time uh, as best you can with face covering. Classes on the beach, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of outdoor ed programs that are uh, getting revigor- uh, revigorated, and it's really cool because not only is it obviously a, a decent option right now uh, for this event, but uh, outdoor ed and the partnership between uh, some of our private businesses and, and our educators to get kids outdoors learning is so amazing. We've been building that back up the last couple of years. So uh, there's always positives that come out of this, and that is one of them. State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Chris Rakedahl. Thanks very much for coming on, Chris. Thank you. Good morning to both of you, and take care. So as we're listening to that, Dave, uh, the superintendent seemed pretty confident that we could go back to in-person learning, at least for some younger grade levels, relatively soon. Um, Let's take a look at that idea a little more closely. So State Health Officer Dr. Kathy Lofi also says that maybe some students could come back to school before the end of the year. Feeling hopeful in some of those counties that are, you know, seeing declining trends um, that, um, you know, hopefully sometime this fall we can do at least some in-person learning. I think it's hard to say say for sure, as we've known all along during this pandemic, it is so, uh, you know, activity right now is still so dependent on our behaviors. What do you think, Dave? Is this uh, a realistic optimism that's being touted? I am less optimistic than I was yesterday. And the reason is because I just talked with the state's chief epidemiologist and he says the factor we have to consider is that we're now getting into flu season mm-hmm. and the symptoms of flu mimic COVID to, to tease out which symptoms you have. You have to take a battery of tests, which, unlike the COVID tests, are not paid for. So it could cost around $300, and there's a four-day turnaround. In the meantime, if you have symptoms, what do you do? Do you treat it as if you had flu and just sort of go to school and let it pass? Or do you quarantine yourself? And... I don't. I don't think it's going to be easy to um, to reassure teachers and other parents that it's it's safe once flu is mixed in with this. Now that what that tells me is, uh, please everybody get their flu vaccine, mm-hmm. right? At least that part is. Uh, at least that's usually free because uh, as these two diseases 
now layer on top of one another, it becomes confusing as to whether it's safe to go back. Let's hear from President Trump. He was with his advisor, Kellyanne Conway, yesterday. They were hosting an event called Kids First, Getting America's Children Safely Back to School. President said if public schools close, states should give their education money directly to parents so they can send their kids to other open schools. Why are we paying if a school is closed? Why are we paying the school? I'd rather give it to the student, the parents, and you do your own thing. And to me, it makes a lot of sense. He says federal money should follow the students instead of going to a closed district. Your thoughts, Dave? Well, he's using the, the pandemic to leverage this idea of vouchers so that you have complete school choice. And that, of course, has been very controversial. I've been a supporter of charter schools, which are already public schools, just as uh, an alternative education, which it turns out a lot of minority parents really like. Uh, the idea, though, of just essentially refunding your tax money to you and then saying spend it on whatever school you want, I think is going to be tough for a lot of people to accept because it's it's hard to set standards for that. I want to go back also to something I heard you and Colleen discuss with Rakedall, and that has to do with teaching students outside. I know the Seattle Public Schools board yesterday, um, their, their vote was unanimous, saying, yes, we should do mostly online remote learning. But then they also did bring up the option that potentially students could learn outside. And Rakedall, I mean, he seemed pretty open to that as well. He did. He did. I mean, the Port of Seattle proposed this, what, weeks ago, saying that we have several parks, uh, we have facilities for doing this all the time, we know how to hold events, we can put up tents, we have uh, restroom facilities. Of course, it's it's weather-dependent. And you have to figure out a way to bust the kids there, and that's going to require some planning. I, I must admit, Aaron, I don't have a handle on just how much planning has gone into this and whether parents have enough lead time to build their schedules around whatever these new busing plans might be. One more note now before we take off. The state health department says it will be updating the way it counts negative COVID-19 results. Up until now, the state was only counting individuals, not the total number of tests administered. So that means if somebody had tested negative two or three times, the state would record that as one negative test. And that methodology is about to change. Now, if someone tests negative multiple times, the state will record each one of those results. The health department says the new approach provides a more comprehensive picture of the outbreak, and it also matches up with how many other states track their outbreaks. And that's also the reason you're not seeing test figures on the state's COVID-19 dashboard today. State Health Department says the agency should have those figures back up in about a week after it updates the new system of tallying those test results. We will be back tomorrow and every day after with a 10-minute rundown of the daily local news. You can subscribe to this podcast. You can also find our news coverage on MyNorthwest.com or listen live at 97.3 FM.